Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter. The road is life. Jack Kerouac on the road. We all carry suitcases filled with the flotsam and jetsam of our experiences. These satchels are that which is us. And we open them and share them in order to connect. Every road is an adventure. Every path a journey. Most are mundane and normal. Some are quite peculiar. I'm Don Hall, and these are my peculiar journeys. There's no question that following World War II, communism was a legitimate threat to the United States. Global positioning of military, spies on both sides, nuclear domination was at its stake. It was a scary time. Intertwined with the anger and fear was a pernicious thread within that, in response to the national angst, in turn poisoned the reasonable fear with demagoguery. Born from that was the House Un-American Activities Committee, H-U-A-C. There's no question today that the time has come for the United States to deal fairly and effectively with the demonization and wholesale deprivation of black Americans in our country. Both the stories we hear and the data we parse through is damning, it's a damning indictment of righteous laws written only to be enforced by the bigots who fought so hard against them. It is hard, however, to see a cause so fundamentally right and long overdue be intertwined with demagoguery. Now, you've recommended Robin D'Angelo's book on white fragility, but you haven't read it, have you? You regularly use the terms systemic racism and anti-racist, but you haven't waded through any Derrick Bell or Ibram X. Kendry, have you? Right? No, not a chance. Well, when it comes to critical race theory, I was an early adopter. I dove into Bell's Faces at the Bottom of the Well in 1997. At the time, I thought it was interesting, but flawed, and good red meat philosophy for the college campus. By 2016, I was twice divorced and living with an avowed anti-racist activist whose godfather was 1960s radical revolutionary Bill Ayers. I saw America, and specifically white Americans, as fundamentally racist. Following the third of three blowout breakups with her, I had what was to be my finally final mentoring lunch with the Moth's resident Latina storyteller. I know who you know. I know you know who I'm talking about. Racist is a term that includes anyone benefiting from a racist system. I mentioned as the conversation turned to Chicago's history of gentrification. Bigotry is individual, but all white Americans are racist by definition. Even you, she asked. I'm white, so by definition I'm racist. I don't think I'm a bigot, though. A month or so later, after coming to the fact that her own personal insecurities and a need for a following had sent her headfirst into a path of radical indoctrination... I unfriended her on social media, and all hell broke loose. She had people call and text me with threats of violence. She manufactured several fake Facebook accounts, had them engage her real account with insults, and then claimed I'd created the fake accounts. She posted a video of her emoting heavily over the fakeness of my friendship, and one of her most potent missives to her following went something like this. Don Hall is a racist. He even admitted it to me. He is a confessed racist. Yeah, I should have seen it coming. Now, if this were the 1950s, the HUAC could have branded me a communist or at least a communist sympathizer. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Uh, no, sir. Have you ever read the works of Karl Marx? 
Yes, sir. Have you ever attended a meeting with communists? No meetings, but parties. Parties? Yes. Meetings with alcohol and communists. Yeah. This guilt by association thing was the most damning and pervasive aspect of the HUAC, HUAC and led to blacklisting, careers destroyed, terrified citizens quickly falling to their knees in supplication, and naming names to avoid the stigma of being labeled a commie. Well, the American Heritage Dictionary defines McCarthyism as the political practice of publicizing accusations of disloyalty or subversion with insufficient regard to evidence. Now, no one subpoenaed by the HUAC was ever convicted of being communist, but a fair number were fined and jailed for refusing to play along. With the definition of who was or was not a communist being so open-ended and ill-defined, only those who either declared their fealty to anti-communism or named names were spared. My guess is that if Senator Joseph McCarthy had had a Twitter account, his damage to the individual lives he publicly destroyed would have been a thousand times worse. Now, several arguments today in the McCarthyism and blackface do their best to minimize the damage done. There's the thread that claims that those who are publicly accused of racism who are then fired from long-held jobs are just fine. I mean, losing a job isn't the end of the world, it's argued. Well, I'd argue you go, you go back and stream the front, Trumbo, or Good Night and Good Luck and tell yourself how fine these people have it. There's also the claim that in these sorts of cultural shifts, there's always some collateral damage. The term collateral damage comes from the Vietnam conflict as a way to dehumanize and minimize the killing of non-combatants, also a dehumanizing term, meaning innocent people, and accidental destruction of non-military property. The idea of there being, a of being collateral damage in the current culture shift is nice and abstract, unless you are the collateral being damaged. The troubles with our current cultural push is in exactly the lack of specifics and false justifications. Mind you, the Black Lives Matter organization has very specific goals and outlined them pretty clearly. The racial, H, racial HUAC does not include them, or I'd suggest the vast majority of those out there in protest. While these protests represent a tiny slice of the population, polls suggest that the serious majority of Americans trust the police force and have no interest whatsoever in abolishing it. They are, however, more in tune with the idea of substantive reform. The effect of these marches are showing some real measure of progressive gain, which I think is cool. Now, the RHUAC is motivated to upend the power dynamic completely, and their means is in a definitive lack of specifics. All right. Structural racism is both quantifiable and data-proven. Organizational bylaws, economic measures taken, the laws of the land, corporate hiring practices, diversity initiatives, and the funding of public schools. I mean, these are structural. We can fix these things. Systemic racism means that everything in the system of society is racist by default. It is racism in the gaps, much like God's will is divinity in the gaps. Prior to the Enlightenment, when someone couldn't explain why something happened or offer proof one way or another, it was boiled down to divine providence, the will of God. Today, when something cannot be explained in terms of racial, racial, I keep saying racial, racial disparity, it is boiled down to systemic racism. White people are racist, so anything that demonstrates a different outcome from black people and strangely absent from disparities between Latin and Asian people is by default racist. For example, a common stereotype is that while white people generally prefer mayonnaise, 
Black people generally prefer mild sauce. No big deal. Maybe it indicates that whites are more bland in their condiment choices, while black people like things a little bit spicier. Now, under the Derek Bell theory, this is due specifically to white supremacy. How? Who the fuck knows, aside from any difference between whites and blacks, is automatically racist. Okay, I, I get it. You didn't read any of Bell's work. All right. Here's a quick breakdown for a few of a few central tenets of his worldview. Critical race theory believes racism is present in every aspect of life, every relationship, and every interaction, and therefore has its advocates look for it everywhere. He posits a theory called interest convergence, which states that reforms in the supremacist system are only created for black people when they also benefit white people, thus no reform instigated by whites is to be trusted. According to Bell, science, reason, and evidence are a white way of knowing, and that storytelling and lived experience is a black alternative. Pointing out logical exceptions to that lived experience is a sure sign of systemic racism. Now, as I wrote earlier, it's a rather brilliant narrative frame. The RHUAC doesn't have to define any behavior as racist or not, because everything is racist when white. Everything. Are you now, or have you ever been a racist? Uh, no, sir. Have you ever attended a meeting with white people? Sure. Parties? Parties? Yes. Meetings with mayonnaise and white people. Yeah. Mayonnaise? Are you white? In the 1950s, most Americans were easily manipulated by the fear of communism. In schools, children learned to duck and cover. The Red Scare was pushed on national media, and the blind terror of bucking the system and refusing to play along with the game of public accusations of subversion was just too great. This was a threat to the American way of life, they were told. Commies could be your next-door neighbor, they were told. And they believed. Today, we are faced with another manipulation that far too many right-thinking people are buying, that white equals racist without regard to behavior. To be white is to be fully complicit, which is both ludicrous and horrifying to consider. There's a cult mind at play with racial hucksters driving an unrelenting academic campaign to grab power through money and influence. No subpoenas necessary, no congressional hearings. I grew up watching the movies about McCarthy and his crusade. I've read the manifestos of the zealots behind the Red Scare. I've read the theories behind the White Scare. They're just too similar for me. All right, welcome to episode 79. We're at 79 episodes. That's kind of cool. Um, yes, uh, as you, you know, we're, we're, we're in the midst of so many things uh, this year in 2020. We're halfway, we're basically halfway through 2020, and it has just been... Uh, a complete list of shit that can go wrong. We're in the middle of the pandemic. We have uh, a whole new set of some of the most effective and impressive uh, racial civil rights protests going on simultaneously. We have fucking fat Americans bored with the pandemic, so they're willing to risk infecting everybody. We've got uh, the pandemic numbers are going way up in several states that decided, fuck it, we're not going to take this seriously. Donald Trump is now having his own Supreme Court kind of rebuke him with uh, discriminatory protections for LGBTQ and telling him, no, you can't uh, eliminate uh, the DREAM Act. I mean, uh, 
So things are really kind of popping this week. It's uh, it's it's nuts. Um, yeah, I wrote that piece about uh, the McCarthyism of uh, in blackface uh, primarily because this the thing about it is it really is troubling that we have something that I think is absolutely righteous, and that is the the march for civil rights against police brutality, that kind of thing. Um, sort of intertwined with this almost secular religion of uh, systemic racism and anti-racist uh, dogma. And I don't buy it. So obviously you heard that. And, and if you want to comment and tell me I'm full of shit, that's totally fine. Um, coming up, I, I just uh, here's just a quick triptych of stories of shit that's going on as we have reopened our casino. Uh, so far, things have been fine. It's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm I still have this sort of concern that... You know, sooner or later, uh, Nevada is going to hit the hit the pandemic wave in a big way. But until that happens, I wear my mask um, and I do my job. That's the deal. Um, so, yeah, here's here's just a quick uh, couple of stories about what I've encountered since we reopened. The Las Vegas Strip is slowly opening one casino after another following the 78 days of enforced shutdown. It was a historic thing, the shutdown, and equally historic is the reopening. A few few huge celebrations have been staged as both COVID-19 still hangs in the air and the George Floyd protests launched on the very night a handful, including the Wild Wild West Gambling Hall, opened their doors for guests after two and a half months. Now, some say business is robust. But the numbers don't lie. Caesars Entertainment posted that revenues were down 63% before the governor brought down the axe. One night, the Bellagio reported record numbers. The next night, you could roll a bowling ball down the slot floor and hit nobody. Sands Tourist, the place is an everyday hit or miss. On Saturday, we're packed. Sunday comes and no one's in the place. And yet, it's afternoon. The West is about a third full, lots of slots clanging and dancing. The bar filled up with video poker players drinking Bud Light in bottles. I noticed three guys over in the corner. I've seen these gents before, so I know they're scam. Two of them sit down and pop five bucks into their slot machines. The third stands and watches them play, which is pretense for feeling text messages. He gets a text. He texts back. A few minutes later, he grabs something, a tiny bag of drugs, from the guy playing on his left. He goes to the bathroom. Moments later, he exits and gives something, cash, to the guy on the right. The text is the customer. They meet in the toilet, exchange their commerce, and voila, a covert drug deal right under surveillance cameras. I wait till I see the deal being done again. As soon as he heads to the bathroom, I follow. She is white, about 45 years old, looking just a couple of bad days from homeless. She approaches me. I have 60 cents on this voucher. She holds it up like a trophy. Where are the machines where I can play one penny? Well, there are penny slots, but the minimum bet is actually five cents. They're right over. No, fine. This is my property, correct? The voucher now inches from my face. Yeah. She rips the slip of paper into pieces. I have a $100 bill. She walks away defiantly. So why the fuck should I come here? He's one of our biggest players, but has a reputation for bullying staff for comps. Once we reopened, the regular free pack of cigarettes per day for our chairman players was discontinued. And he's pissed. Beats me, why the fuck do you come here? You! 
You're like an old Vegas casino host. And Shira and Jane, I like you three. But I just don't understand why you don't comp me to fucking pack of cigarettes. I dropped $1,300 in the last hour. Any place else I go, they hand me cigarettes and meals without me even asking. He's real worked up. He's still playing video Kino, but is punching the buttons real hard. Well, then you better go to those places. I will. I am. Rock on. And I walk away. This is the game. Before the shutdown, we'd play it once every couple of months. He'd demand more free stuff, throw his money around, and do his level best to get as much free stuff as he could. He never gets up from the Kino, although he's still playing it like the game is cheating him. I walk into the restroom. The one stall door is closed, but there are obviously two sets of shoes in there. I bang on the door. Come on. Come on. No need for two cats and the John out. My drug dealer comes out looking indignant. The other guy stays. Nope. Both of you, out. The customer slithers out, looks at me, looks at his connection, lowers his head, splits. Here's a deal, I say. I'm not tossing you and your buddies out as long as they're playing, but I'll give you a choice moving forward. If I see you or your friends come into this bathroom one more time, I'm having you arrested. Otherwise, stay, but if you got to piss, piss your pants. He nods, give me some mumble bullshit about this being because he's black and exits. He goes to his buddies, says something, they cash out, and all three leave as if their feet were on fire. Crazy lady is at it again. I received three complaints from other guests that she's coming up to people, pulling her face mask down, and asking them to smell her breath. In normal times, it's fucking weird. But in the middle of a pandemic, this is potentially lethal and fucking weird. I approach her just as she's about to ask another unsuspecting gambler to smell her breath. I say, ma'am, don't, don't do that. Don't. I'm fine if you're here to gamble your $100 bill, but if you bother one more person with your breath, I'm 86ing you. Understand? You're really very rude. I'm calling corporate on you. Fine. Sure. Whatever you need to do to feel whole except for breathe on a bunch of strangers is fine with me. Don, come here and check my level of play to see if I can get some pack of cigarettes. I sigh and smile, although through my COVID mask, it's kind of hard to tell. All you have to do is ask nicely. I'm 54 years old. I'm too old for you to bully. But I spent $1,700. You not enough to give me some fucking smokes? God damn. Ask nice. He laughs hard enough to almost knock him off the swivel chair. You some bitch, fine. Can I please get a free pack? I reach into my vest and pull out a pack of Newports. I hand them to him with a flourish. He laughs again, a huge brain guffaw. You some bitch. I can't quite figure out in the midst of a horrifying global virus why these folks are not at home. I mean, I'm here because I'm working, and in this economic nightmare we're approaching, I'd rather have the gig. Why these people are coming out, masks, no masks, handling cash, which I must tell you is only less filthy than the human mouth, is beyond me. In a gallows sort of view, I suppose, if you're at the end of your rope, at the end of the world, you might as well try your luck for a payday. What else you got to lose? And that's the podcast this week. Thanks for listening, as always. If you are interested in helping finance, helping me finance this uh, venture, go to www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Throw me a couple bucks. It's always a nice thing to do. And, uh, you know, with the economy and the way it is, uh, I don't know how long I'm going to have a job at the casino. So it'd be nice to have a little bit of a cushion. So if you want to help out, that's great. If not, just share it with people. I really appreciate uh, 
I really appreciate you listening. Um, I don't know how many of you there are, but I hope there are at least six. And that is it. So those are my peculiar journeys for this week. And uh, I will see you or you'll hear from me next week. Thanks. This has been another episode of the Peculiar Journeys podcast. For archived episodes, go to donhall.vegas slash podcast to hear stories of Chicago, of Millennium Park, and of the big move to Las Vegas. If you dig the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and review the show. If you really dig the podcast, why not go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and help fund the endeavor. Whatever you decide to do, thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for more of my peculiar journeys. Parece que sí, compadre. Bueno, pues bueno, pero me vas a ganar feo, man.